My name is Brent. In the history of Earth, I may be the strangest creature ever to live. I mean it. You have to look at Maximum Fun to find anything as weird as I am. Maybe Griffin McElroy, who was supposed to be a 30 under 30 media luminary. Or Ben Partridge, half beef and half dairy or whatever. But those are professionals. I'm a Thandalite. Welcome to Fandalites. This is Megamorphs number three. Feels like it. <laughs> Elfangor's secret. So uh, this episode, the the drink that I came up with, uh, the red-tailed hawk, <laughs> it's a spin on a traditional uh, drink called the yellow bird. Hmm. So it's it's uh, half a part Galliano, half a part Killipitch, uh, which is a German herbal liqueur, uh, half a part fresh lime juice, one part brandy and a splash of grenadine, and then some brandied cherries for garnish. Mm. Uh, it's got a nice herbaly woodsy flavor, which I think sort of fits with um, Tobias's home. And also, it's got that nice red coloration at the bottom. It fades from brown to red as you go down. The, uh, the brandied cherries I'm using are ones that Jenna made. Delightful. I'm so glad that you're using those, because I ate all of mine, and they were very good. They are excellent. Yeah. It's on my list to do this year again. Oof, so good. Well, maybe if we come visit you, we can steal some. Yeah, get your brandied fruit on. <laughs> you gonna? You should post a picture of this beautiful drink. Oh, on I've, the, I've the, got the one. The Fandalite's Twitter. Excellent. I good. absolutely okay. took it. It's going in the show notes as well. Yes, excellent. Uh, so before we start with Megamorphs number three, which I'm real excited about, we have like a, sel- a selection, actually, of transmissions from Zero Space uh, that we have avoided doing uh, for a bit. Um, so this first one uh, is about uh, our Andalite Chronicles episodes, and honestly, I really like it. It blew me away when when I got it, and I think that you will want to canonize it as well. Okay. Um, it's from our fan Dev. Dev says, in the last episode on the final part of the Andalite Chronicles, that's how long we've been putting this off, <laughs> you focused a lot on Lauren and Elfingor's relationship, i.e. the focus on her being 18. I think that K.A. was intending Tobias to have been from a teen pregnancy, but Scholastic would have shot that down, no question. So she worked mm. around it. It's uncomfortable, but it's reality and in line with a lot of the darker themes she puts forward. As a child of teen pregnancy myself, I identified really strongly with Tobias, and I think it plays really essentially into his background. There are a lot of parallels in his backstory, emotional state, pre-Animorphs. A huge part of the experience is like you're the family shame, and having parents that are literally incapable of raising you leaves you to feel like a burden on the rest of your family. Depending on how traditional or religious your family is, you can be shunned or disowned. It's a rough way to live, and with Tobias's human self being severely devalued, I'd say starting fresh as a hawk must have been even more enticing. That's pretty heavy, but my head cannon anyway. LOL. <laughs> I like that. I think that's a really good contender for for a canon reading of this. And it solves some of the issues I had with her being aged up for the purpose of they, them getting married off. I, 
I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like insight. that so much that it retroactively makes me look more fondly on the Andalite Chronicles. Yeah. I And I, I, I appreciate why Scholastic wouldn't have, but I do wish that were something that they could have committed to doing. Yes. And I, I yeah, f- in keeping, I think, fairly with the Animorphs uh, aesthetic <laughs> of, of dark teen business. Yeah. Dark. Oh, God. Dark teen business. uh so we've also got um one from right after the book where they infiltrated that slaughterhouse uh this is from andy uh last name redacted who (laughs) says hi y'all this is not super well thought out but i think that axe needs therapy the most out of the animorphs especially after this last book wherein he almost gets slaughtered because he almost gets slaughtered do you think yeah that's that's what they're saying i believe okay I think that's fair. I mean, uh, obviously they could all use some uh, PTSD treatments because uh, that's only seeming to get worse. And Although, you know, it, it seemed like it was getting worse and worse, but it hasn't been as much of an issue in the most recent books, would you say? Does that sound right? I think in this book specifically that we're about to cover, Axe seems more affected than he I, I expected him mm. to be. Yeah. I think it's a slow drip for him, but I think that um, Andy, last name redacted, is probably correct, especially because Axe doesn't really have a support system like the rest of them do. The rest of them still have family and friends, and he's kind of alone. He's got his Shorm and the Animorphs, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have have as much as an emotional network, I guess, as the rest of them. He has Tobias, his (laughs) quote-unquote nephew. Oh, they don't (laughs) have nephews in Andalite culture, I guess. (laughs) His Shorm. Uh, yes, his Shorm. Yeah. Uh, so that's our Zero Space Transmissions. And let's start digging into Megamorph's number three, Elfangor's Secret. Yeah. So this one opens with Elfangor, like it's a it's a prologue where Elfangor's burying the Time Matrix. It is implied that he uses a shovel himself to dig the hole, <laughs> which having dug holes with shovels, like... One large enough to fit the time matrix and bury it deep enough that it's not getting found during construction is mad props. Go Elfangor. That must have taken a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, he he would not be able to feel his arms the next day unless he was very fit. Hmm. I mean, he might be very fit, though, to be fair. His human morph? Maybe. Yeah, why not? I don't know how the froless maneuver, like works with muscle I mean, mass okay but once he's in that body because this is like years after he's been in that body right or i guess did he did he bury the time matrix right right away i guess he probably did yeah i imagine he probably did well listen Bryn, if you have a choice of a new human body to morph into probably gonna pick out some some svelte svelte figures i mean he didn't really he he had a choice of whoever lauren could knock out and drag back to the woods <laughs> that's true which is probably <laughs> maybe not the super muscular ones yeah that's fair probably i guess still more upper body strength than the andalite base form yeah he might not have known he was pushing himself dangerously i wonder if muscle aches persist through morphs i bet they don't and i bet that's how he pulled it off oh you're saying it was before he committed to being human yeah demorph every body. two hours and then remorph and you fresh oh yeah yeah it, it's just a mental game at that point so the actual first chapter is a dystopian Earth X Nazi reality like the wish in Buffy, because as it turns out, a yerk known as uh, Visser John 4, Barrowman. Yes, oh. John, 
John Berryman, uh, who who we have decided is John Barrowman in the same way that Sario rips or Sanrio rips. It wasn't even a decision for me. I saw John Barrowman and then actor, which is the, the next like word four words after, and I was like, oh, John Barrowman. Obviously, that's what this book is about. In the gritty Animorphs reboot Netflix series, this character will be played by John Barrowman. He would do a spectacular job with this role. As himself. No, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd do great. Yeah. Have you seen any of his stuff post uh, post Torchwood in the in like the DC Arrowverse shows? Yeah, here and there. Mostly um, in what's the one? Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, mostly in Legends of Tomorrow. The weirdest thing is Legends of Tomorrow, I think, are his weaker performances. Oh, yeah, well. He, he he goes a lot stronger character-wise in Arrow. Don't don't at me. Um, that's, that's my personal opinion, and I'm, you're allowed to disagree. That's fair. I'm not going to at you. I have no strong opinion because I haven't watched much of Arrow. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> this, is a conversa- this podcast is a conversation between you and me, Brent. You and me and our listeners. Mm. So they immediately throw you a curveball um, in this first Tobias chapter because he talks about how in love he is with Melissa. Yeah. Yeah, that was so surprising and weird. I hated it. Yeah. And you're like, who the fuck is Melissa? Well, yeah, obviously. Get the fuck out of here. Because we're Rachel and Tobias until we die. Yeah. Yes. Or until they die. I mean, no, just until. And, and then after, <laughs> yes. actually, because that does happen in this book. Oh, God, it's true. To more than one, to both couples, actually. (laughs) Uh, So my personal take is that this is Melissa Chapman. Yeah, you mentioned that before we started recording and it blew my damn mind because I didn't make that connection. But yeah, I think you're probably right. Because in in this dystopian alternate reality, uh, Rachel has been sent to a re-education camp because she's a strong woman. Too headstrong. Yes. So she's like a handmaid or something. Uh, and her role in the group is filled by someone named Melissa, who I assume is Melissa Chapman. And my thought on this, I know you were kind of upset that uh, Tobias apparently is just going to fall for Latch anyone. Latch on to whoever's in that spot. Whoever whoever the girl in the group that isn't Cassie, because Jake has claimed to her, maybe it's hard to say in this future. He doesn't seem that into her because she's subversive. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what their relationship is, honestly. Uh, since he's, like, exchanging loaded glances with Marco about potentially turning her in. I, it, you know what? I'm going to make a bold statement and say that doesn't read as romantic to me. <laughs> if, 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 if somebody is thinking about turning you in to the, the quote-unquote triple S, I think that's a bad sign. Yeah, yeah, probably not uh, great for your... Plus... Jake's already having to prove that he's not a subversive uh, due to his Jewish heritage. He probably doesn't mm. want any more suspicion cast on him by dating one of the other reviled minorities. Yeah. Yeah. Although although Cassie, her family seems to own a slave. <sighs> they do. Yeah, which is some shit. But it, it, there's also mentioned later that if you go and fight in the war that we're waging on Brazil... Uh, And when you come back, if you survive, which most of them do, you'll have like all sorts of luxuries like a house and a car and no slave. Um, (laughs) They give you your own DACA. So I have to assume Cassie's dad probably went off to war. Like, do you think that's a safe reading? I mean, maybe. The thing is, honestly, I, I wanted to see more of this because I am a sucker for dystopian alternate timelines. (laughs) Like, uh, 
like Age of Apocalypse I previously mentioned or the the Wish from Buffy. Mm. Um I I fucking love alternate timelines where everything's gone wrong um and there's sort of weird twists on all of the characters you're familiar with. I would have liked to see that explored more. I do like all those weird twists. Yeah. Uh, but it's only a chapter before the drone shows up, uh, so so we don't really get a lot of insight into that. My assumption about why Tobias is in love with Melissa Chapman is because she's the closest you can get to Rachel if Rachel's not there, since they were like besties for a long time, and obviously he's got a thing for mm-hmm. gymnasts, <laughs> and if he's staring dreamily at the table where Rachel eats lunch and Rachel's not there, then Melissa's going to be the one who's there. Yeah, I think that's a fair reading. Uh, In a way, it feels like Rachel's one of the most subversive characters to, like, the the structure, at least in the mainstream of the book. So my instinct is, like, Cassie's probably second second best to that now that Rachel... Now that the overt subversive has been shuffled off the stage, the... The secret subversive one, Cassie, seems like a better choice. But, you know, Cassie's not a gymnast, so what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, also, they're all teenagers, and I don't know if you were this way when you were a teenager, but I certainly was. Uh, You're feeling, you fall in and out of love so hard all the time. No, I didn't date until I got into college because I thought romance was dumb as a a teen. I didn't say anything about dating, I also did not have crushes on people because romance is dumb. All right. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, Sorry. Jenna. Mm. Fuck. So we have, yeah, so the drode busts in and is like, how fucked up is this? <laughs> right. Melissa disappears and is replaced with Rachel. And I love that voice from the drode, actually. That's sort of a hedonism bot <laughs> yeah. type thing. That's my new canon drode voice. Good. We're giving everybody voices left and right for everybody. For for the audience, because you aren't aware of this yet, last week we spent some time recording the first Alternomorphs, and there were a lot of voices. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> back to the actual book. So yeah, the Drode lays out that Viscerforce found the Time Matrix and has gone back in time and fucked things up bad, and that because of the arrangement between Krayak and the Elemist, and the fact that Krayak doesn't necessarily want to set the precedent of allowing people to fuck with time, uh, which may explain why the Elemist came down so hard on Elfangor at the end of the Analyte hmm, Chronicles. Even though Elfangor did the right thing. Yeah. Which, once again, Elemist, why make the fucking time? Yeah, no, that was, mind. no, that, let's not, never mind, because that was a big question for me. Like, why did you make this? I I assume that what the Drode said was a lie, and that, in fact, the Time Matrix could hurt Krayak or the Elemist. I can't conceive of what other reason the Illumist have of of one creating it or two of them being worried about it. Because if the, if if time if the continuity of time isn't as important as the things you're doing in it, like what does it matter? What does the time ma- matrix really matter? So my thought on the time matrix that came to me just now in a brainwave is that it is an artifact of a less advanced time in the elemist culture okay before they evolved into beings fourth dimensional beings beyond time and space this was one of the steps in their evolution into that and as such can't be removed from the timeline but it could still be could potentially still be destroyed like it feels like there's a utility to it that the like there must be a reason they're keeping it around and not just absolutely getting rid of it like, because the Illumis could have even moved it off Earth. Like, he could have put it 
a different, but you could have put it in the middle of a goddamn sun. Yeah, but then the Elemist would have to admit that they, like, directly fucked around in the timeline instead of just giving people choices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have had to admit it to anybody because it's not like Elfangor ever got back. Like, if he had just whisked it away from the construction site, Elfangor wouldn't have known. I feel like they're they're playing a big game of I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you with Krayak is yeah, the thing. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, the, the, the MacGuffin's still on the table. Yeah, right. So the Drode tells them, yeah, neither Krayak nor the Elemist is very pleased with the fact that someone's been fucking around with the Time Matrix again because... It, that's a wild card uh, that can affect them. Obviously, the, the drought says it can't affect them, but obviously it can, if, if applied properly. So the, the deal that they've struck up is that the Animorphs can be sort of attached to the, the wake of the Time Matrix and be pulled through time along with Visser 4 in order to try and stop right. him. And all Krayak demands is one of their lives. Yeah, which... Again, because the Megamorphs are canon, but kind of not. Like, there, there's no way one of the Animorphs would have gotten killed off in a Megamorph. I just don't see that happening. It's just one of those things that knocked me from it, because I was like, okay, they're doing time bullshit. There's say, saying one of them's going to die, but that's going to get unwritten, like, for sure, for sure. From a meta perspective yeah obviously but they don't know that they're in a megamorph which is why marco and cassie immediately exchange a look because they know jake's the one because jake is basically being like yeah we'll do this knowing that when the time comes it's going to be him because he'll volunteer because he's the leader the the supreme leader (laughs) oh god so yeah cassie and marco immediately exchange a look and they're like yeah we're not gonna let this happen yeah. Which is nice. I really liked that. It was a good moment. Like they, like Cassie takes Marco's hand and is like, we're, we're making a pact. We're not going to let Jake die. Because it, even independently of being his girlfriend and his best friend, they're friends separately and they immediately know. Yeah. It's such a good, I just love that, that friendship, the, the, the Marco-Cassie friendship and the way that Jake is a part of that, but not the focus of it. Yeah. I, I know that we're ride or die, Rachel and Tobias, but I think- my favorite relationship in in these books is the friendship between Marco and Cassie because it's so natural. It's, I think that it's up there. It might not be my favorite, but it's up there because it is a good one. And every time we get the moments with them, they're always like really special and interesting moments where it's not just like Rachel and Cassie hanging out, which I also love. It's like, this is a thing. This is a moment. So they agree to it, of course, because what are you going to do? Live in, in Earth X Nazi no. land? Pass. Yeah, definite pass. Hard pass. Although Jake's fine, apparently, because he bought in hard in, in that reality, which makes sense yeah, to me. of course he would. And they immediately get sent back to medieval France. Yeah. I, I don't think medieval is like a, an actual term anymore, but y- you know what I mean? 14th century yeah. France. Battle of Agincourt. For not 14th century, 1400s. Yeah. Sorry. 1400s France. Battle of Agincourt, although they don't realize it at first... Because American high school students are like the least prepared to keep someone from changing French history. Yeah, even John Barrowman, actor extraordinaire, seems to have a pretty good grasp on things. Well, he has worked with a lot of British people. Yeah, that's true. He's probably better versed in European history than these American Southern California teenagers. I mean, he 100% has been involved in Doctor Who. And you know that they've done an Agincourt episode. Oh, I'm certain. I mean, in 50 years, I'm certain they have. 
So they show up on this uh, battlefield, and uh, a French knight thinks that they're witches. Yeah. Which Rachel responds to by turning into an elephant. It's so good, because they don't even really try. Like, Cassie's on the verge of trying to talk their way out of it after they find somebody who speaks English. But Rachel's just like, nah, nah. Which one of them is it that knows, like, a teeny tiny amount it's of French? Cassie. She says she's taken one semester of French. Yeah, yeah. So she's doing the Cassie thing and trying to talk their way out of it. And Rachel's like, mm, we ain't got time for this Oh, shit. they think we're witches? Well, let's lean into that by turning into an elephant. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, and then they immediately, you know, sort of latch on to the idea that they probably shouldn't be murdering anyone because that could change history. Although I want to say it's entirely possible that they've already doomed Europe with their future North American bacteria. <laughs> kind of a, a war of the worlds, but in time. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works, but I feel like it's, it's it can't be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, you have MRSA showing up in, in Agincourt. It's not going to be, not going to turn out well. So Visser 4's entire plan appears to be climbing a tree and assassinating Henry V in the middle of a battlefield with a longbow, which seems a little dicey to me because I've only ever shot recurves, not English longbows, and they're kind of hard enough to hit stuff with reliably when you have a non-moving target on, like, a range. Yeah. Like, that's a skill. Uh, so unless Joan Barrowman has traveled back way farther and spent, like, 20 years mastering the English longbow because it has a reputation of being incredibly labor-intensive, like, to the extent that... I've seen articles claiming that, like, the musculature of English archers specializing in the longbow had one, like, real beefy <laughs> arm, like, completely out of proportion with the other one because it was their draw Delightful. arm. Delightful. Uh, and because they basically practiced that shit since they were children, um, which is part of the reason that crossbows, you know what, it's an unnecessary digression. Well, let me ask you this, Brent. Does John Barrowman on arrow ever fire a bow and arrow? Oh my god, so much. He's, he's Malcolm Merlin, the Dark Archer, and Raza Ghoul for a while. Okay, well, I'm saying he's he's in Agincourt now. He's actually probably pretty well equipped to kill Henry V with his bow and arrow skills, more so than a normal actor. Okay, you know what? You're right. I'll, I'll give him that. I'll give him that. It's not as dicey a plan. He has professional experience. You know he's doing his own stunts. Yeah. He's a dedicated and well-respected actor, and I think he would do it. I, I think on, on, a, Such a, beautiful on man. a battlefield like this... I don't think there's a better, it's not a good option, but I don't think there's a better option. Because what are you going to do, like attack him with the sword? No, that's a bad choice. This is a bad battlefield. If you're impersonating an English soldier, you like get up behind him and just like shiv him in the back a bunch of times like a sewing machine. I just don't, first of all, I think that's a, a dicey maneuver, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, There's no non-dicey plan here, I guess. Two, I'm just saying. But I mean, how do you get, how do you, so you kill the king. How do you get out of that is the question. Because then, then you're surrounded by his guards. We, we find out later in the book, like at the very, very end, that the whole reason he's even attempting this maneuver at Agincourt is because the host, John yeah, the host John Barrowman is sort of resisting the Yurk by constantly doing monologues from the Shakespeare play Henry V. And it's driving Visser 4 fucking nuts. Yeah. But he cannot determine reliably where Shakespeare is, like, in time to keep him from writing the play. So his best bets to assassinate the actual historical Henry V that the play was based on so that Shakespeare can't write it. So I 
think probably he's very desperate at this point. He he seems like he's unhinged by by this continuous performance. Which is which is a shame because I think I could listen to John Barrowman perform Henry V for just constantly. Like I could probably do that for a long while before I cracked. I think that would be very engaging. My only complaint would be that I didn't also have David Tennant and Patrick Stewart mm. like accompanying him the full set. In, in other roles. Yeah. 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 So that actually, I and we're jumping ahead a little because we're talking about something that's revealed at the end of the book, but it made me wonder, and I didn't talk about this before because I wanted to get your reaction on air. If you were a controller, what would you use to try and drive your Yerk nuts? Because hmm. hmm. John Barrowman's an actor. He's got a bunch of monologues from Henry V memorized and he just keeps performing them constantly what would you use yeah my instinct and this is a bad instinct but my instinct was just the nastiest human stuff like really weird sex acts that would make him very uncomfortable and like re really horrible ideas of bodily functions and, and body horror probably just really leaning into how horrible it is to have a human body and to have to live with this meat sack as it decays around you. So you're just going to, like, project Junji Ito panels. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of what I already do to myself to, and is what is driving myself mad. So I think I would just double down on that. But what would yours be, Brent? Oh, I, I would just do Cotton Eye Joe on it. Fuck, sleep. God. That's a good one. <laughs> it's a good, terrible one. Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything. <laughs> I like the idea that he, he it, it, the your yerk, goes back into the yerk pool and is like, thank God I don't have to listen to where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. And then just can't help infecting the rest of the yerks with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the brilliance of it is that it, it's an earworm, so uh, you don't even have to do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, see what I did there. So you don't even have to keep singing it after a while because the yerk can't stop singing it. It's very good. <laughs> um, so they actually managed to save Henry V on this battle uh, improbably. Uh, Cassie morphs a horse in the middle of a 1400s battlefield, which seems like not the best move to me, survivability-wise. Yeah, I mean, a, a horse without a rider is less of a target. That's true. But it's still a lot of meat in a battlefield where there's a lot of swords and arrows being slung. I mean, there's enough arrows that, like, it's blotting out the sky, right? <sighs> Tobias gets sort of knocked down just accidentally. There's so many arrows arcing through where he's at. Yeah, and, and Marco as well ends up in the mud. So they, they do the bird parachute maneuver. Classic. On, <laughs> right? On, and catch the arrow mid-flight that would have killed Henry V. Yes. Thus foiling the first of Visser IV's nefarious time travel plots, but probably the least important one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. L I mean, literally, definitely the least important one. So then they all sort of flash forward to... What's the next time period that they end up at? The Revolutionary yeah. War? Yeah, crossing the, the Delaware. Washington crossing the Delaware. And somehow Marco and Jake sort of find ponchos. Blankets. It literally blankets with like holes torn in them that they can drape over their gymnastic clothes bodies. Yeah, which 
I was more amused by before I remembered that they actually had morphine outfits. <laughs> you thought they were just naked with blankets? I was like, Marco's just walking around nude with a blanket. <laughs> and, like, and Washington is like, boots. Oh, that kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he stole a pair of, of GW's boots, yeah. so that's pretty wild. Yeah. So Viserfor's whole plan here is to like tip off the Hessian mercenaries that the crossing is going to happen so that they just get gunned down in the middle of the river and spoiler alert it fucking works yeah. like, real well it quickly and efficiently yes jake takes a bullet to the forehead and the back of his head disappears and cassie who is a dolphin in the delaware river <laughs> sort of loses her mind a little and so does marco who's trying to keep the the revolutionary soldiers from pushing jake's body over the edge of the the boat but they just do it because like it's just a dead body what are you gonna do with it really hold it up in front of you like take cover under it because the hessians are still firing yeah no they still have to like row and shit yeah i guess so yeah it's it's a fucking disaster and jake uh is dead for most of this book yeah which really breaks them up yeah i i i think appropriately but they, yeah, they, absolutely. they do what they have done in every other time warp book, which is when one of them dies, they just sort of keep going because they have to. And they, they just sort of hope that there's some sort of weird loophole that'll set everything to rights. And there always is. So that's nice. I mean, what else are you going to do other than keep going? Yeah. And to be fair, I don't think any of them realize that they can loophole Jake back to life until a couple leaps after this. No, but I think they, I think there's, they very rarely react to the deaths. And honestly, there have been so many, like there have been so many time warp deaths at this point that it, it, I mean, I, as a reader, am having a different experience in them as animorphs, but it's, it's just, I, I have to assume that they're like, well, Jake's head. And we think this one's going to stick because we made a deal with Krayak, but let's just wait it out so i i honestly i think they react hard to yeah. it um i mean that they react more to this than a lot of the deaths that that they've experienced because they well marco and cassie specifically um had made a pact to not let jake die and now they feel like they failed and rachel is so angry that she like has a great line where she bullies axe into going and murdering mm the hessian commander it's so good yeah she says god what is it hold on i wrote it down oh she said she tells axe they killed your prince do your duty right because axe is waffling like well we probably shouldn't kill these people it's back in time they haven't like they're they're not controllers <sighs> and tobias is like yeah they're they're it, it I, I don't know if we should kill them they're not controllers they're human beings and it's like yikes tobias i mean yeah, that's a freudian slip they made before yeah i mean rarely quite so on the surface but yeah i think we know at this point that they do not consider the controllers humans because they can't except when it's one of them yes but yeah so so axe is very much like uh i I don't really, and it affects him way more than I expected it to for the rest of the book that he kills this Hessian because Rachel just immediately assumes control and is like, fucking kill him, Axe. And Axe is like, well, I, he killed your prince. Do your fucking duty. Yeah. And it, 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 it does seem like if Axe hadn't, he might, it, it seems like the next scene might've been Axe 
quaffling like did i fail my prince by not avenging him like that seems like right. a pretty a reasonable andalite stance yeah axe because of his cultural background is in the unfortunate position of sort of having to agonize over it no matter what he does because either he's a coward or a murderer yeah it's it's rough yeah after they completely fail to keep that from happening jake and and also <laughs> george washington both die yes oh yeah 100 yeah. percent. Uh, jo- although george washington doesn't die until a few le- weeks later in british custody but it completely foils the american revolution yeah. i don't 100 percent understand why that eventually leads to nazi america i mean i think everything's just so fucked by that point I mean, because there's also, we also have the uh, scene right after where they're on the ship, the the Trafalgar. Yes, they, they show up at the Battle of Trafalgar yeah. in one of the English ships. And Viscerfor's plan there is to blow it up so that the English lose. Yes. Which, like, fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> Cassie has pieced the fuck out because she is still in Dolphin Morph and she shows up in the ocean and is just like, I cannot because jake died i cannot and so she's just like off this whole time she's having a a crisis yep and marco is so fucking angry that he just immediately morphs gorilla and starts chasing viscerfor around yeah but does not doesn't i mean it takes a while to catch him there's some like madcap chase scenes on this ship as it's getting getting attacked with cannons yeah, I don't. I didn't read them as madcap necessarily, although I understand how you could. Yeah, just I'm just picturing like he knocks somebody out with like a, a bludgeon and then takes takes a powder keg and is running over the ship and there's a gorilla chasing him and then there's a bear. Wait, is it no a chimpanzee also? It it yeah. It probably should not have read madcap, but it did a little bit for me. Okay, I I can see that. I was. I was invested at that point. I Marco was so hurt and angry and Rachel was so just dead serious that I I just couldn't read it as madcap. That's fair. It was a little madcap in retrospect. Oh, I forgot to mention that during the Revolutionary War period uh, jump, Marco gets told to be quiet because he's like talking to Jake <laughs> in Horse Morph. <laughs> yeah. And people are starting to look at him weird and he still can't help himself. He can't help but crack wise, yeah. He keeps cracking jokes. More like crack unwise, because they do think he's crazy. <laughs> he he cra- keeps cracking jokes uh, on the Thoughtspeak conversation, which I find extremely relatable. <laughs> he just can't help himself. It's reflexive. So yeah, so they're, they're on the Trafalgar. Rachel chases Viscerfor up the rigging and gets blown in half by a cannonball because they, they, the naval battle starts while they're like running around on this ship. And everybody thinks that Rachel's died, too. Yeah, which is a fair reading because she literally sees like half of her body, half of her chimpanzee body still clinging to the ropes as the half that I guess has her consciousness in it falls to the ground. Yeah, yeah. And then like blacks out. So, I mean, we're all pretty sure that Rachel died as well at this point. Yeah. I mean, meta analysis aside. Yeah. Then they sort of like, they, they almost managed to stop Viscerfor this time, but Axe's tail blade, when he cuts the line of gunpowder to the barrel to keep it from exploding, somehow sparks? Yeah. Against, uh, my question is, against what? The wood? How? Is, are Andalite tail blades made of metal? I assume they're made of like chitin. Because I could see if it was like, 
like there are nails in the deck, right? So he could have hit metal, but if his tail isn't like made of flint, does that does that work? I that was the sort of thing that I was like, okay, it sparks, whatever. That's <laughs> yeah. that's fine. That's fine. Axe has an oopsie and blows up the ship. Yeah, he's got an axe for a tail. That's how he got his name. Oh. So then they show up at Princeton in the 30s. Yeah. It's, it's the it's the 30s, right? Uh, I think, the, yeah, they think they discovered it's 1934. Yeah, and everybody's super white and super crew cut. And uh, they figure out that Bissarfor's plan here was to murder Einstein yeah. so that he doesn't invent the atom bomb so that World War II drags on. Uh, although he's already made so many changes that Einstein isn't even at Princeton. Yeah, at this he's point. still at Germany, which in Germany, which makes sense given what we learn about the sort of the European court around this time period. <laughs> A certain Mister Adolf H underscores in the uh, in in the Bronte style. Yes, yeah. So it, I mean, it makes sense that Einstein hasn't fled Germany because, as we learn later, Germany's. Well, we don't really know. We don't know what's up yeah, with Germany. Yeah, we know fucking nothing. Yeah. We just know that Hitler's not in charge of it. No. This is, I think, uh, when when Cassie, who who appears as a dolphin in the middle of like a cobblestone <laughs> road yeah. and starts demorphing, I think this is the first time that we have someone throwing an N-bomb at her. Oh, yeah, absolutely it is. And I, I assume the last, I assume that's probably not going to happen. In the rest of these books, these teen books meant for teens. They do a lot of time travel. Yeah, they do. But I mean, there's there's a very narrow window of time when that word would be used. And uh, I think I think part of this book was really meant to underscore how fucked up history is. So I don't I don't I don't know if they're going to go back to dinosaur times and somebody's going to drop the <laughs> N word on 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 Cassie. Okay, no, that's fair. I just like the the main point of these books is not about the experience of of being black in America. They're about the horrors of war. So I just thought it was interesting that that was even a thing that was brought in at all, just like you thought it was interesting when they talked about Jake and Cassie's biracial relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing, especially in 90s books, where I, I think the Animorphs address it to a greater extent than a lot of novels, because... That was around the time, like, late 80s, early to mid-90s is when you have all of that, like, diversity for diversity's sake, where you have, like, I mean, like, think about Captain Planet, where you have a lot of diverse characters, but none of them have an accurate lived experience. Or the uh, the Burger King Kids Club's uh, (laughs) group of people. Yes, the strategic diversity that ignores, for the sake of, like, an utopian ideal, it ignores the actual lived experience of being like anything other than a straight white dude in america so the kid in a wheelchair was named wheels fuck god burger king kids club (laughs) so the fact that the fact that these books ever address the fact like the fact that we had that one book where uh marco's mother marco's hispanic mother is stopped at a store and and accused of shoplifting and not really accused of being visitor one and about to be taken away but the subtext of she's hispanic so that's why she's getting stopped is there and like Kat, or, uh, rachel getting called a, a a gendered slur because she said no to a dude like it, it touches on these things and that's not really the point but just the fact that they touch on them is 
more than a lot of books in this time period do. That's fair. Also, I, this is Tobias and Rachel's first on-screen kiss, if I <laughs> remember correctly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because Rachel appears not dead, mm-hmm. and Tobias's immediate reaction is to spin around and plant one on her. Yeah. I, I guess I've just assumed that they've been kissing up till now. I just assume that they're going out on dates that last for one hour and, and 50 minutes, uh, or, or at least have I- increments of hundred of one hour and 50 minutes. Tobias really likes being a hawk. I don't know how often he turns into a dude. I assume that I assume that he turns into a dude for them to go on dates. I don't think it happens a lot, but you don't think they're, you don't think they're going to like the movies? You don't think they're going to go to dinner? You don't think they're going to go like putt-putt golf? feel like one of them would have mentioned it in their pov books but all they talk about is him like hanging out on her desk while she does homework there's i mean there are there was at least one reference that rachel made to them going out on dates but it wasn't clear if it was a hypothetical or actual dates that they've been on okay that's fair you're i guess you're you're giving them more credit than i am. I just assume they're maybe okay alternatively i hope they are alternatively i assume since they go flying which we know that they do they go flying together that's probably what Tobias considers a date. One hundred percent. Yeah, that is what Tobias considers a yeah, date. Yeah, he goes and gets an eel from behind the pet shop for them to split as birds. And they do that lady in the tramp thing where oh. they start on opposite ends oh. and end up kissing in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Except it's a hundred times worse because they're just kind of doing that that bird choking down sort of motion with their heads, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an eel that's still alive. And they're just smacking beaks at the end. Yeah, it's bad. What a bad image, Brent. (laughs) Nobody wants to see that. But I mean, let's be real. An image that bad is consistent with these books. Yeah. And it's not like human kissing is a lot better. It's pretty gross. As Axe points out. Yes, there is a purpose for it. But neither Tobias nor Axe nor us is certain what. I, I think Tobias knows what the purpose is. God, then why won't he tell me? <laughs> because nobody wants to get beak smooched. That's true. And he doesn't want to be a person. Yeah, and she doesn't want to be a hawk. Yeah, so they kiss. It's very good. And Einstein isn't there. And, uh... And then they jump. They leap again, but it's not a leap home. No, no. In fact, it's... Oh, boy. Just, uh... They just leap to D-Day or or this weird reality's version of D-Day. Yeah, because D-Day is still happening for some reason. Yeah. And they sort of assume that the ship's beaching are the good guys. Yep. Even though it's an invading force, which is questionable anytime it happens. Not not actual D-Day. That was an okay one. Right. History is just screwed up enough at this point, though, that like as they discover the that nobody's wearing swastikas, they're like half French flag, half German eagle. And Hitler's a Jeep driver. Yeah, that's the one thing I remember. I don't I don't necessarily remember reading this book. But when we got to that point, I was like, oh, I do remember reading this. This is the one where Adolf Hitler is just like an old dude who drives a Jeep and they kill him. (laughs) Because he is Hitler. This is the one where the gang kills Hitler. Yeah, which I, 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 so I don't love, I mean, I do love Legends of Tomorrow. So let me, let me couch this. I, I don't always love stories in which people are going around fucking up timelines, especially when they're like, we're going to kill Hitler. Um, Cause it's a cliche and I think everybody treats it like a cliche, but also like it's really what they want to do. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, good job. You, you picked the one thing about history that you've 
understand because it's modern enough that you learned about it in school and that's the thing you're going to change. But I, I liked I liked this angle on it, which is that they already fucked up history so much that, yeah, they can kill Hitler. He's just like a, an old Jeep driver. So how do you feel about yourself now? It seems like the sort of thing that you necessarily have to address in any story with time travel. Even Doctor Who has had an episode about it. I know. One that I watched and did not care for because it's the because th- it's just it's just it's just as an idea it's so obvious and maybe it's obvious to me because it's a cliche i mean that's kind of why you have to address it because it is obvious. i don't think you have to because the, the thing is everybody wants to address it and i don't i just don't feel like appreciate i i just hate it brent i don't have to justify my hatred i just no you I absolutely just, don't i think it it's is a i think it's a lazy cliche and i think too many things try to do it in earnest when maybe they should just not and i think this was a good version because it acknowledges that like, like if you went back and killed baby Hitler, maybe things would have ended up very differently and much better. But maybe there just would have been a different person doing a different shitty thing during that time. Well, and I think this is K.A. Applegate's way of coming down hard on the nature side of nature v. nurture. Mm. Because they they sort of agonize. Well, Tobias doesn't agonize. He just fucking does it. But uh, No, he does it on accident because of the, oh, the grenade true. going off. That's true. He does it in an accident. But they sort of agonize back and forth about, like, is this even, like, does killing this Adolf Hitler even matter? Because he didn't do any of the things that the other Hitler did. He's arguably not even the same person yeah. as historical Hitler. And it's, I, I think that's what Kay Applegate's trying to come down on, is it lived experience contributes more to who you are than predetermined uh inherent attributes yeah and i think that's especially poignant given that these are a group of teens who through twists of fate and nature and i guess kind of in tobias's point his heritage but not not really they are having to do some really really horrifying things and it's not because they're bad people or that they want to be doing them it's because they've been put into this really horrifying situation after this D-Day scenario, which involves another bird parachute. Hand grenade bird parachute. It's my free association poem. <laughs> Axe has a lot of shade to throw about how terrible humans are in this chapter. Well, in this section, I guess, in his chapter of this section. Which I guess is fair because he's not strictly speaking aware of the fact that the Andalites attempted to genocide the entire hork race. Mm, yeah, that's fair. He, he probably doesn't know about the quantum virus. He, he does seem horrified that humans just slaughter each other in mass, which, yeah. like, fair. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, especially since the Animorphs, I mean, they've been in a lot of battles by this point, but also nothing, I mean, not big full-scale battles like this one, not, like, not artillery tank battles where there's medics on the battle and, like, Axe gets trapped underneath a, a dying soldier who gets shot and then gets double trapped when the doctor who goes to help this dying man also gets shot. And that's a lot. That's a lot. And it's, I mean, the doctor isn't even really helping the dying man. He's just comforting him because there's nothing he can do, which makes it double pointless. And Axe is really affected by this in a way that I didn't quite expect coming from a warrior culture Mm. that glorifies war. But I guess the Andalites glorify war against other 
races. Yeah, and and I think maybe there's something different about Andalite War because it 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 seems like it's mostly spaceship based, and then you have occasional one on one tail on tail battles, but those are like honorable and righteous. They're not. It's not mass slaughter. Sure, and and it's very easy for them to look down from the vantage of spaceship battles where you don't actually see anybody bleeding out onto massive trench warfare conflicts where people are being mowed down by the hundreds. Yeah, and as far as we know, there's no like Andalite civil war. So it, I mean, and and if you're an Andalite who perceives all other species as below you, then probably doesn't have have the same impact. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. He's still, he's he's pretty fucking disgusted with humans, which, like, Fa- I, mean, I mean, I guess is fair, yeah. but also acts, come on. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that perspective, because the, the rest of the Animorphs are sort of like, yep, this is, yeah, this is worse, it's worse than we could have imagined, but this is the thing that humans do a lot, yep. Yeah, I mean, it affects all of them in various degrees. Marco says that he'll remember the smell. Yeah, the smell of D-Day. For the rest of his life. Yeah. Actually, we find out a... Uh, um, sort of interesting piece of trivia here in that Rachel mentions that her dad is Jewish Mm. and earlier in the book Jake implied heavily that he was Jewish yeah so that's sort of the interesting piece of trivia that we find out about them that has not at all come up in any of the other books yeah I, I sort of knew from the IMDB page having their last name mm. and having read some Syropedia stuff but I was pleasantly surprised to find out that it came from the books. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's one of the things I'm talking about is like they're, and Buffy was sort of the same way, actually, because you have Willow, who is Jewish, but somehow that almost never actually comes up. It's it's one of those sort of invisible minorities that isn't in real life, but on TV, you can just say, oh, yeah, this character's Jewish and then not ever have to reference it again. So after they keep the German tanks from making it all the way to the beachhead at D-Day and murder fake Hitler, yeah. or alternate Hitler? Alt Hitler. Mm. Pre-infinite crisis Hitler. Okay. <laughs> they, they managed to capture John Barrowman, who calculated incorrectly and was arrested by the French-German authorities uh, upon tipping them off to the D-Day invasion. And he gets crushed like in half by a thing yeah which is pretty satisfying at this point yeah yeah i mean they've been just this close to catching him the whole time Mm. yeah literally within like arm's reach a couple of times and and conveniently the time matrix is like right there although they take their sweet time getting around to it like they like half the team is doing this hand grenade bird parachute hijink to, to drop the hand grenade with the pin pulled in a tank to stop a tank. And it's like, okay, stop. The time matrix is right there. Would one of you just do the thing? I don't think any of them, until Cassie like talks to John Barrowman, quite realizes exactly how she's decided to resolve this particular historical thing. Like, they all have the idea that they're going to change something to make sure that Jake doesn't die, but none of them have quite come to the same hard conclusion that cassie has which is that they need to go back and make sure that john barrowman's parents never meet and that he is not born yeah which which is an interesting option it was not what i expected from cassie but i probably should have because she 
appears to rush headlong into making the hard decisions and then agonizing over them afterwards, much like the Drode identified in uh, his previous interaction with her. Do you think that keeping John Barrowman from being born is the hardest option? Because I actually think that's... I mean, compared to the other option, which is wait for him to exist and then murder him, I, just having having a moment where you keep two people from meeting and therefore they do not have a child is still dark because you're unwriting a human, but it's not as dark as waiting for that human to be born and to grow up and then slaughtering them. It feels to me like the easiest option would be to just move where the time matrix is buried. Oh, well, I can see that, yeah. Like before John Barrowman gets to it. yeah. But Cassie immediately jumps to unwriting his existence, which is pretty dark. Yeah, especially considering, like, they knew where the time matrix at. There's really no reason why they couldn't have just moved it. And then that would have been the end of it. And they sort of have this argument about it in San Francisco in the 60s. Yeah. With some cartoon hippies hanging around. Yeah. I actually appreciate that bo- in both that scene and in the Princeton scene, they're both sur- they're just done with being undercover. They're just like, yeah, I morphed. Just, I mean, deal with it. Like, yeah, it's a time matrix. Don't touch it. Okay, okay, let's keep this going. (laughs) I I appreciate that they're just like, done. There's just no reason to be undercover. But by that point, they've explicitly admitted that they're going to be changing history. So none of this matters. Yes. Yeah. Which I appreciate, actually. That made me made me like it more that they weren't fussing. (laughs) Because they just, they knew. (laughs) They knew. It's fine. But yeah, so they they show up in San Francisco in the 60s, and there are some real cartoonish hippies hanging around, and they have an argument about whether or not they can justify writing John Barrowman out of existence. And then they sort of have the decision made for them, because just by showing up there, they distracted his mom long enough that she never meets his dad. And that seems like a risky plan to me, because you're still changing history, and by John Barrowman's own account, he's... Not a famous or maybe important figure, but he still has had an effect on history. So to to just unwrite him seems like you're still you're still fucking up the timeline somehow. Yeah, and unwriting him in the history that he's already changed doesn't seem like it necessarily would carry over. But we we already have established that the way that the Elemist views the timeline is not necessarily sensible to three dimensional entities. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, for us, it looks confusing, but from the Elemist staring down at time as a flat circle, it still fixes things back to where they were somehow. Or if there's any differences, the kids probably won't be able to tell. So maybe that's good enough. (laughs) It's like Seinfeld was never on. It was a different show. It was (laughs) the Larry David show instead. (laughs) That's the only difference in the new timeline they go back to. Yeah, that's the it's it's the Larry David show and uh, McDonald's is famous for making hot dogs. <laughs> I like that. A, a gentle it's not a full blown dystopian, just just a little different. It's enough that it really fucking messes with you for the rest of your life. Well, it's the Berenstein Berenstein. <laughs> Ironic given. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it's it's like that one episode of Sliders where they arrive on the place that's just left of the <sighs> <laughs> I'm so disappointed in how sliders ended up being so bad. But when they when they 
erase John Barrowman from existence. They all show back up in Cassie's barn and Jake is alive and doesn't know how he ended up there from the Delaware, which is good that he doesn't remember being dead because that seems like it would be super traumatic. Yeah. But it's been super traumatic for the rest of them. So I guess he's just offloading his trauma. Hmm. I am interested to see how this, if this affects his and Cassie's relationship dynamic at all. Oh. Now that she's lived with him being definitely dead as the sacrifice to Krayak for a while uh, and then got him back. No, do you think that it'll make her like more reserved, like knowing that that's an experience that could be repeated at any point? My hope is that it will make them less concerned with sort of keeping things on the DL because it, one of them could be off to any time. <laughs> so why why spend so much energy being embarrassed about it when you're just going to regret not having lived it to its fullest? That's fair. I, w- I would like that too. I hope that happens. Yeah, I, d- I do as well. Is there anything else from this book? Yeah, what are your what are your final thoughts on it? Um, I liked it more than I like a lot of the time hijinks books because e- even though like most of the time hijinks books, you know things conclude with not much actually changing, not not much in their overall story pushing forward. I thought it was still pretty good. I thought it was still pretty engaging. There's a lot of weird stuff. They bounce here and there. They don't load up on a bunch of cool new morphs that we'll never get to see again, dinosaur times. <laughs> uh, overall, I, I liked it. I, I appreciate that they subverted the uh, Hitler trope, even if I wish they just didn't even bother with the Hitler trope. I think we have different ideas about what you need to... It's like the, it's like the old joke about, you know, somebody says... Uh, the 90s called and they want their shirt back and the the response is the 90s called and you didn't warn them about 9-11 you fucking monster whoa i've never heard that joke but you've, it's a good oh, one. you've never heard that it's a good yeah. one yeah all right so well so that's that's the thing it's like it's the obvious oh time travel exists what's your first thing that you're gonna do well if you exist in this time in this culture your immediate thought is hey maybe keep six million european jews from getting slaughtered yeah, and I mean, I, I appreciate that. It's just like, if you have the whole of time to go through, like, there are so many more interesting and complex ways you can approach that. And it's just like, oh, let's just kill Hitler. It's like, okay, well, I, it's just, it's just, it, there's one way to tell that story. And you don't ever have to tell it once you tell it. And it's just, it's the sort of sad wish fulfillment where the idea that people want to go back in time to fix history just bums me out because we're living history right now and people don't do shit to change it. So it's just this idea of going back in time and saving people when you're not going to do anything in your current time to save actual people here and now who are suffering is like, it's just, it's just bullshit. It just gets right under my skin, Brent. I'm sorry, it's got so serious. That's fair. And it's it's a really good point. And I think probably the reason why time travel immediately like delineates itself is because if you can just time travel away after you've done it, then you immediately avoid any consequences. Yeah. And you don't it's it's so it's easy to look back after somebody has told you, hey, this is the moment where things went really wrong it's Mm -hmm. it's easy it's easy a hundred years later to sit back and say oh if we had just done this everything would have been better and it's like okay instead of looking back start looking forward and saying okay what can i do now to make the future better and it's just like i don't know 
I, I guess I'm just saying I, I kind of understand why anybody who introduces time travel as a plot element in their fictional media feels like they have to address the why haven't the people with time travel gone back and killed Hitler. Yeah, and they have to address that because it's a cliche and it's a cliche because people want easy wish fulfillment solutions to big complicated questions. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're on the same page here. I'm just more sympathetic to anybody being like, fuck, well, now I I have to address this shit. Yeah, and I'm just tired. Yeah, I get <laughs> just that. Just tired. I, I get that. <laughs> um, so personally, I think that this book was Kay Applegate's uh, sort of way of hammering home the visceral horror of mass battles. Hmm. Because like you said earlier, they've... They've been involved in skirmishes, but this is the first time that they like keep getting bopped around between historical battlefields with actual full-scale armies just slaughtering each other in mass. Yeah, it's a lot of death, and so far the consequences that that the animorphs have dealt with have been mostly the psychological aftermath of having to participate in war, and they haven't been so much the immediacy of I am only alive because there were enough dead people piled on top of me to keep the bullets from making it through their corpses. <laughs> yeah, literally in Axe's case, yeah. And also, I I know that we both were very, very irritated at The Forgotten um, <laughs> because the Sanrio rip just undid the entire events of the book, so what's the point? I feel like this one, even though at the end everything was sort of unwritten, I feel it earned it in a way that the forgotten didn't. I I agree with you. I think the it it has a literary purpose in in sort of framing the animorphs struggle so that after having read it even though the events within it are unwritten in the consequences of the world, we on the meta reader level still have this awareness of like this juxtaposing of the Animorphs war experience with broader real life historical war experiences in a way that I think, I think you're right. I, I was not as frustrated with this Hitler aside. I was not as frustrated with this as I was with the forgotten. And I think that's, I think you make a good point. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in the forgotten only Jake remembered it and he just sort of bumbled his way through the whole thing and there weren't really any hard choices made. It just sort of like, Oh, now the whole thing's undone in this one. Everybody remembers it and they remember having to deal with the consequences of their decisions. And they had to make a really reprehensible decision in order to unwrite history back to where it is and and even the last line of the book where jake asks if they put it all back right and cassie replies no we didn't make it right but we put it back just Mm. leave it at that we put it all back yeah yeah and i think that underlines the complexity of time travel stories that i mean i mean most time travel stories are fun wacky romps that's why i like legends of tomorrow uh (laughs) it doesn't take itself too seriously but there is this underlying anxiety about time travel stories that gets me it's like you can't you can never make everything right because you'll never be able to anticipate the downwind actions of your choices so you can you can put things back into a certain row, but you can't make things right. And I really appreciate that Cassie's like, well, <laughs> Cassie, the, the the moral center is like, well, we did a bad thing, but things are steady and stable. So that's, whew, we did it, I guess. She's like, yeah, Jake, the, the Holocaust and the Cold War happened <laughs> Fuck, again. Yeah, right. So 
We're back at a known quantity, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's this, just the sort of like the the evil you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you have any time travel media that you want to like pimp out or endorse here towards the end of this episode since it's so heavily time travel based and so concerned with the metaphysics and ethics of time travel? I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I I do love many seasons of Doctor Who, but the sure. the ones of Doctor Who that I like are when they're very, very isolated and they're not about queen victoria's a werewolf or whatever <laughs> they're they're about here is just some regular human beings living out their day-to-day and and those are the stories in doctor who that i like the most i mean i i do like the torchwood episode the the episode where they create torchwood where victoria werewolf etc cetera, etc cetera. but no i don't have any recommendations do you are you a big fan fan of time travel stuff i i want to put it out there immediately that i have a lot of complaints about fucking stephen moffat's run on mm. doctor who uh, but that's another podcast entirely, I think. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, we cannot get started on that. <laughs> I think we um, both agree Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, a yeah, very Legends good of Tomorrow show. is amazing. Yeah. Um, but I actually am a big fan of time travel media that has sort of weird arcane rules that it's got to enforce, like the sci-fi run of 12 Monkeys, the TV series. Mm. And and I know a lot of people were like, why would they need to remake that? It was an excellent movie. You're right. It was. The TV series is different. It's its own thing. It just shares some premises. And it's actually really fucking good. Mm. And I, I quite enjoy the way that the rules keep bending back and interacting with each other. Okay. Yeah. I remember hearing about that when it came out. And I never watched it. Because time travel stuff bugs me, I guess. This is something I'm learning about myself in, in this moment. I don't think they ever deal with hitler at all in the 12 monkeys series because they're primarily concerned with the like the global pandemic that wiped out humanity mm. in in that timeline in like the 20th century okay see i like that i mean i like 12 monkeys the movie so so engaging with that premise makes sense to me yeah um so no i i really enjoy it and honestly like there's a a role playing game that by all I've never actually read it, but I've read the the Fatal and Friends rundown, and by all accounts, it's uh, not great in actual play. It's called Continuum Roleplaying in the Yet, and <laughs> just based on the review, I have a soft spot for it because it very much is like these are the the hard rules of time travel, and like here are what happens if you go out of them, and there's a whole I I don't know I'm I'm a big fan of of time travel media. That's good that that has real hard and fast rules and and then runs up against them and sees what happens. Yeah. I like that you like time travel media and and are here to provide a different perspective from mine. <laughs> that makes me feel better about coming down so hard on them. Oh, no, totally. I I very much appreciate how hard you are on this because you're right. Let's kill Hitler is a pretty fucking played out trope. So, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, a good book. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this Megamorphs as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, that's right. We only have one more Megamorph. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and who even knows? I assume Elfingor is going to be involved in it in some way because all of them... Have sort of. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Like they all, the titles at least. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Elfingor's secret may be a misleading title for this one. <laughs> it wasn't really a secret to us. No... It's barely a secret to the Animorphs. Yeah. It's definitely not a secret to Krayak or the Alamist or the Drode. Fucking Drode. Fucking Drode. I, hate I the Drode. 
I like the Drode a lot better now that he has a hedonism bot voice. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, this timeline is fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> Rachel, why don't you join us? <laughs> I apologize for nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think I actually like the Drode now. You, 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 that's on you. Uh, so thanks for listening um, to Megasode number three. We appreciate all you guys. Uh, if you've got any commentary, um, hit us up at Fandalites on Twitter, Fandalites at gmail.com, Fandalites.tumblr.com. Thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Uh, it's a real good tune <laughs> and a real good mix of that tune. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely look at Jenna's new Polygon series, Fiend Zone. Oh, I'm yeah. a big fan. Yeah, thank you, Brent. I'm oh I'm loving it. Ugh. She she really uh goes deep as deep as you can in like seven to ten minutes. I I wish they were longer. I understand why they're not. Yeah. In into critical analysis of of horror media and culture, and uh, it's very good. It's very good. Thank you. So I guess that's it. We'll see you next time. Next week we're doing I think book thirty. I think so. Oh. Did we already do book 30? Book 30, The Reunion. Okay. That's that's the next one, uh, the next episode. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So we will see you then. And, and until then, remember, nostalgia is a drug. Nostalgia is a drug.